Welcome to the Speak Like a Leader podcast with John Bates. Welcome to the show. With me today, I have Darren Verasami, and he is someone that I met. I think the first time we met in person was uh, sharing the stage at uh, Profit First, Profit Con, like a few years ago now, a number of years ago. Geez, I don't want to think how many years ago. Um, but uh, that's where we met. And Darren uh, has a company called 34 Strong. Darren also uh, has a podcast coming up that he's, well, they've got a podcast there, 34 Strong. It's all about teamwork and leadership and and great management and all that. And Darren's got a new podcast coming out. I think it's natureadvantage.show. Is that right? Yeah, natureadvantageshow.com. Yeah, that's... Uh, natureadvantageshow.com. Okay. So Darren, tell people a little bit about you and your background and where they can best find you. Let's just get that all right up front so people yeah. can go check you out if they want to. Absolutely. It's hard to believe that it's been a couple of years since we first oh. met at ProfitCon. That was exactly it. We shared the stage together. And interestingly enough, for all of your listeners, the whole concept of the natureadvantageshow.com. So it's natureadvantageshow.com. It's a podcast and it evolved out of what was supposed to be a TEDx talk in July of uh, 2020 that has now moved to summer <laughs> 2021. And yeah. everybody's listening, you'll never guess who was coaching me on my talk. It was John. <laughs> we got way into it. We were deeply built out by, I think, March, April, and then things started. Ready to go. To go. Yeah, you, you, you know, you you yeah. did it right, too. Yeah. Like, we, yeah. I always try to get people to have this prepared, like, a month or two or more before they actually speak so they can live with it. And mm -hmm. you got a little more time than we planned on to do that, but it's not all yeah. bad, right? <laughs> yeah, but the and on that note, the fascinating backstory on that is as I was building that talk, I had had the chance to just interview some fascinating people, John. I had interviewed Mike Michalowicz. I think he's been on your show before. He's yeah. number one. He's podcast number one. Uh, podcast number one, right? Wall Street Journal bestselling author he is, you know. He's I, fabulous. He's incredible. I've gotten the chance to interview Grammy Award winning musicians, one of my icons. You can't see behind me right now, but hanging over my shoulder is a is a bass guitar and I've I've played bass my whole life. So the whole framework yeah. of that show was rooted in the fact that I was going to give a TEDx talk on is nature an advantage, is collaborating with nature an opportunity to tap into our individual greatness and our even our organizational greatness and genius. So as I was going through the process of preparing that with you, John, I just kept having conversations with people once I realized COVID was kicking into place. And then what ended up happening was uh, the nature advantage, Joe was uh, was launched. So we can find it there at natureadvantageshow.com. Now, 34 Strong, that's my primary company. Uh, I'm the co-founder of. We we help create great places to work, John. That's what it is. We take on a strengths-based approach to human development and really focus on what's right with people and really focus on creating cultures of highly engaged people. And, uh, and, and, and we, even in times of uncertainty, how we can build trust, how we can really create compassion in our organizations, stability and hope. Those are the four needs of followers as identified in the in the book, Strengths-Based Leadership. So we get into that and the podcast for 34 Strong that I, I currently host with my business partner, Brandon Miller, is called Leading Strong. So you asked me to share where people can find me. You can check out 
34strong.com. You can check out natureadvantageshow.com or the same link that will get you. There's my first name and last name, darrenbarasami.com. We'll have that in the show notes because that can be a little yeah. bit <laughs> to spell uh, for everybody. You know, you can follow me, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all of those magical places uh, that are there. So that's just a little bit of the background. Well, that's awesome. And it's, and, and, you know, I, uh, one of the things that I love about your approach at 34 Strong is that I read a, a, quite a while ago a study that said they, they, they looked at what typical culture at organizations was like. And, and this may be, I may not have the exact things down, but if I understand it right, typically, in Europe, there was more of, a, at least this is maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, there was more of a focus on figuring out your strengths and weaknesses as an executive and then trying to get stronger in your weak places to round yourself out. And that makes sense. And in the United States, though, there was more of a focus on figuring out your strengths and figuring out your weaknesses and then getting other people to do what you aren't good at and really focusing on your strengths. And apparently of those two approaches, whether it really did break down Europe or US, I don't remember as much, but of those two approaches, the strengths-based approach, focusing on your strengths and then just hiring people to take care of what you're weak at seemed to be a vastly superior approach. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's uh, that's at the core of what our approach to human development actually is. So the nuances of one versus the other, I don't know all the nuances of what every other country has done in every every other region. Yeah. However, I can say I, I've we've encountered plenty of organizations here in the United States and abroad. We've we've worked all all across uh, the world with many many different companies. It is our natural human tendency. So even if we take out the leadership piece, when we go back to our natural human basic focus, we often gravitate, John, towards focusing on our areas of weakness and think that our areas of weakness are our greatest opportunities for growth and development. So even though it, there was this approach that came up, Dr. Donald Clifton asked the question several decades ago, what, what happens when we focus on what's right with people instead of fixating on what's wrong with them? That became a shift in how we looked at growing our cultures. What has transpired over time is not a focus on strength strictly, but where does that actually lead to? What's the outcomes that we can see? So what it's correlated with is higher levels of employee engagement. What does it mean when people are more engaged? It means they're more productive at work in terms of their performance, in terms of what they're getting completed. They, that those organizations tend to have higher levels of profitability, lower turnover. John, turnover is so expensive for many organizations, many, many companies. Even if you're a nonprofit or in the government sector, that's so expensive in yeah. going through. And people, what, what does it mean to be engaged? Well, summing that up, people want to be valued for being valuable. You're not going to catch your disengaged employees and actively disengaged on the on the extra extra mile, right? They're, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good enough. I don't need to do any more here. And that's that's part of what can hold us back. So those are some of the pieces that we see. And from a cultural standpoint, a really powerful question, I think that's important for listeners to take. 
is simply this. Do you want to have a culture by accident or a culture by design and intention? Because here's, yeah. the, here's the story. You're going to have culture. There's a lot of folks. That yeah. you're, no, no way to get away from that. that. No big deal. It, it, it's not there. No, it actually matters. And you're going to have it one way or the yeah. other. You, you, you don't want a, a, a doctor showing up in the OR operating on you accidentally. You know, if you, right. need to have, if you need to have heart surgery or something, you want them to be intentional and have designed what they're going to do. Not just say, oh, well, we'll just kind of see how this goes and yeah. kind of go, go about it. You have the power when you're leading a company to think about what do I want this culture to look like? What does this mm-hmm. look like from a design basis? And be intentional about that and make no mistake about it. The road will be long. There will be work that needs to be done. And it's the work that we can't afford not to do. It's so powerful. Well, I really, really like that point because the, you've got culture. I mean, there's not a question about if you have a company culture, you do. And to think about, is it going to be better and work better for you and achieve better outcomes if you have consciously crafted that culture or if it just kind of happens without much attention is a really good question. And I strongly believe that culture eats strategy for lunch, breakfast, and dinner every single day. You know, I just don't think that there's any question that culture is just so important. Now, what when somebody asks you why that is, what would you say, Darren? Culture is strategy. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Culture is strategy. Culture is strategy, right? You're not going to your culture is the lifeblood of your people. Your people are the lifeblood of your organization. Cash is important. Business systems are important, but who are the ones that are the blood cells, right? That are going through it's the people and how they yeah. interact with each other is critical. You and I have both, you know, talked a lot about getting outside, working to maintain healthy lives, going through that, right? We can't go and eat healthy on the 3rd of January and go exercise on the 3rd of January and think that we've done everything that we need to for the rest good of the for year. The year. Yeah. Hey, but I had a really good January 3rd. It'd be really nice if that was the case. But what is culture? It's the repeated habits and interactions that we see that are taking place regularly and the way that we maintain a healthy body when we break this down on a biological level is what hey i I know that if i go and work out really hard on the third of january and eat really healthy and do nothing for the rest of the year that's probably not going to be a recipe for success however if i do regular pieces of regular exercise regular focus on what i'm eating that over time is going to lead to a long-term sustained health because what are we doing? We're doing the work on on the body on, on on a cellular level. I'm no biologist, so I hope I'm not offending anybody who has far better scientific credentials than me. But really simplifying this is so critical. Our people and focusing on that and focusing on that culture is the is strategy because it's the work that you have to do to play into your strategy coming out. We can look right. at strategy through the lens of this is the process, this is the vision, these are the tasks to get there. Well, plugging right into that is the people piece of the equation because none of that comes to reality uh, unless we're focused on the people strategy, on how those two pieces plug in. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that um, the reason that we talk about that in the same breath as leadership is a little thing called 
mirror neurons, <laughs> you know, and everybody has mirror neurons. They're the neurons that are inside of us that have us feel what we see other people going through and experiencing. So if somebody walks in and they're really happy, we get happy. We don't even know why, why, what you're so happy about, you know, or if they walk in, they're sad. Oh, why, why are you sad? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. What's going on? Like we feel it, you know, and in organizations, people are always mirroring the people above them in the hierarchy. So, you know, culture does absolutely start at the top. And my question for leaders fundamentally is always, number one, do you have any idea what an impact you have? And number two, are you giving people something you want them to mirror? Because how you're being is how they're going to be, you know? So true. How you show up is how they're going to be. I'm going to give your listeners three M's that are important for them to think of that build on the level of mirror, right? So a leader's responsibility, we get stuck in this space, John, of differentiating between leading and managing. And they're two very different things. The leading Mm -hmm. role in setting that vision and going through it, what they have to do is they have to mirror, they have to model and they have to message the culture that they want. Yes. To have. So you already have nailed it on the mirroring side because that's what people are going to see as the reality. Yeah. But we have to be intentional about messaging it. Now, here's the part that it, messaging and modeling. Here's the part where we often trip up. And I know you've seen this. I know I've seen this in organizations. Oh, but Darren, we talked about culture on the, on the third Wednesday of, uh, of August. We did that for the year already. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to model it. And then we go right back to what? Mirroring exactly what we don't want to have. But we had this great conversation about it, right? We'll see that in organizations, what we have to do is get consistent. It comes right back to that that analogy that we were talking about with the body of maintaining the health and well-being. It's it's going out, maybe taking that walk a few times a day. And I, I know you recently just took a hike with your family, right? That's healthy for you, healthy for the family, and kind of yep. go through some of those elements. I, I do the same thing. That's the part that kind of maintains it, but exactly why we need to message that and model it, not once, but regularly. We have to constantly be doing those things because that's how the real change the systemic change within the organizational culture takes place. And here's the thing. When you first do it, if your culture has had elements of of challenge, elements of toxicity, it's not going to go great right out of, right out of the bat. And it's going to take time. It's going to take, take you stepping in it. It's going to take some messes and those messes slowly become little successes. And those little successes might lead to more messes that will then become bigger successes but we start creating more and more from those uh, more successes from those messes one step at a time. Well, and that's how it goes. You know, I was just having a conversation um, with another friend of mine named Adam, Adam Anderson, and talking about the fact that, you know, success is actually just not giving up every time you fail, (laughs) you know, it's just keep in going. There's so he had had 20, businesses fail before he had the big hit and, you know, had a cybersecurity company that finally made it and made him lots of money and boom. And, you know, 
but that's after 20 failures. And so I think with, with culture and with this mirroring modeling and messaging, you know, if somebody is in a place where they're not happy with the company culture that they have, that they currently have being willing to, to just take it on and fail for a while, you know, anything worth doing well is worth doing poorly till you can do it well, <laughs> you know? And, and it's going to come into the place of, you know, of, of being intentional. And here, here's a tool that I'm going to share with people. A lot of times it starts, where, where does culture really show up very, very strongly, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of people's engagement. Let's go back for a moment based on what you just said, right to where we started this in terms of engagement. At least 70% of an employee's engagement, John, is tied directly to their manager, right? People, this is what Gallup has found. People don't quit bad organizations. They're quitting their boss. You know that. I know that. We see it time and time again. So what happens? What is at the root of people quitting? One of the biggest pieces, we talked about the four needs of followers. People need trust to be able to follow you. And what's often missing in so many organizations, this seems so simple and so fundamental, and yet it's a huge gap. People aren't clear on what's expected of them. They don't know what's expected of them in their work. And here's exactly why. And so, and I really want your listeners to tune in carefully because I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to give you two powerful questions that you can just use to ask your, your the people that your managers are leading that can be the difference. Expectation setting. If I'm setting expectations for you, John, we're working together and I'm your manager, I'm going to set expectations for you the way that I would set expectations for who? For me, not for you, not in the way that it resonates with you. Your learning style might be totally different than mine. And we don't ask the question of, John, tell me about how you best learn. Asking that simple question, ask your people that you manage, or if you have managers, tell them to ask that question in a one-to-one and find out. How do the people that you manage best learn? Just in identifying and and camp out there, dig into it. Because when you individualize your connection with them, that's one of our skills, by the way, in our uh, Leading Strong podcast, individualize. That's on on one Mm. of our episodes we talk about that. But when we can individualize and understand different people's learning styles, it can we can create little shifts. And okay, I know when I am working with John. I'm going to present an idea. He's going to want to talk it out. I know when I'm working with Jill, I'm going to present an idea and she's going to sit there quiet for a while. She's going to need some time to think. She's going to need to go do some research. So instead of me getting upset at that, I need to create some space for her to open the door back up, to come back and ask me her clarifying questions, not just say, this is the end of the meeting. It's done. And that's going to be the difference between doing it once right or always somehow seeming seemingly being able to find the time to do it again. Because we never have time to do it right the first time, but we always have time to do it right the second time. Well, that's my dad was in the Marine Corps. What's that? uh, My dad was in the Marine Corps and in combat in Vietnam and made it very clear to me early on that you put stuff away so that it's ready when you need it, you know? And he said, if you don't have time to do it right, when are you ever going to have time to do it again? You know? And, uh, Boy, did I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> but boy, did it turn out to be a great lesson, you know? Very true. Very true. And on the heels of that, so the expectation setting, the how do you learn differently, the follow-up question that to 
fully close the loop that oftentimes gets left as an open loop in our brain, which is something that we absolutely don't love. Ask people, how do they like to best be recognized? What's the best way for you to be recognized? How, how do you like to be recognized? And people oftentimes give you, well, I don't need any recognition, just a little small thank you is fine. Ask them, well, what do you mean? G- give me some specifics. I did that same question, John, with a team of leaders that I've worked with for years. And, and they all said that, 12 of them in a room. So I said, tell me more. The first one said, well, if you're giving me a thank you, a small thank you, specifically identify how my team has contributed. Next manager goes and says, well, if you're giving me a thank you, what's really meaningful is understanding how the work that we did fit into the bigger picture of the organization. And so we run around to 10 more people and their minds were just wide open. Like I had no idea that these little nuances in how we say thank you and recognition can be a difference. And what do we do there? We're then able to close the loop, recognize people, And the more that we celebrate wins, the more wins we have to celebrate to quote Oprah Winfrey. That's, that's down to. Yeah. It's fabulous. You know, it's, it's funny because uh, I am friends with one of the guys who was the lead solo blue angel and that's a high precision team. And there's a lot on the line, you know, when they do their thing, pardon me, John Foley. Yes. Yeah. That's I, I have quoted him so many times and shared his story so please tell him that. I love his work. I, I, love I, I will definitely tell him. I, I just saw him the other night. Yeah. You know, if I don't have my mug here right now, but my mug has a glad to be here sticker on it, which is his, yeah. his, you know, his phrase. Um, but, you know, what, what, uh, what I, what I got, you know, one of the many things I learned from him is that they very purposefully brief to go do their events. Great. I mean, you know, let's get prepared. Let's do it. A lot of people will get ready for something. What one thing they do that, that I think most people don't think about or do enough, including myself, uh, till I got this is debrief in the first place. Like it's important to debrief. And when you debrief, what they do is they spend 20% of the time on what they did, what they could have done better what they didn't do well, what they could have done better. 20% of the time. The other 80%, this is the blue angels. Like they're a military high precision, not California woo woo. You know, they still spend 80% of their time celebrating what went right. High fiving each other, watching the tapes going, Oh, dude, look at that. You're so wow. Awesome. Right. So, you know, what you're saying there, I think is, a really key, a key piece to make sure that, yeah, you got to focus on what you could have done better, but take the time to celebrate those wins and you'll get more of them because you get more of what you focus on. Excellence begets more excellence. And you're absolutely, we are what we focus on. That is so critical in what we're doing. So excellence creates more excellence. And there's this notion a lot of times for leaders, John, that, hey, you know what? I'm going to study uh, all of the failures and I'm going to do the opposite of that and that's going to lead to excellence. No, excellence has its own set of operating principles. We need to study more of that and yeah. we have to create those anchors in the areas that we're actually doing things really well because what does that do? That creates more anchors for us to 
be able to climb as if we're climbing on a, a, a rock wall. You've got to create those anchor points and going through externally, but more importantly, internally. We've got to take that self-awareness. And that's really the one common common trait that I think the best leaders have in common. It's not that they're all visionaries, all great at connecting with people. There's different recipes for that. They are self-aware. They know who they are and who they aren't. And when they're highly aware of who they are and where their strengths are, they're equally as aware of where their gaps are. And they're willing to own those gaps, those weaknesses, and help to get others into place that could fill those in. And those others are in a place of strength in filling those in. And that creates the, the connections and, and, uh, and, and how things work together. And that environment of where trust is not just the leader showing up and mirroring it. From that point, it starts to become reflected in what happens amongst the team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, what I keep thinking about as we're having this conversation is I just am just about finished reading the book Infantry in Battle, which is the United States essentially, it's about this thing's pretty big book. It's a debrief of all the major battles in World War One. And it's done with the intention of learning the lessons that could be drawn out of World War One. And I think that a lot of that got applied successfully in World War Two. And one of the big things, I mean, you know, the whole book, this huge thick book about all this stuff, Basically, the takeaway for me is keep it simple, right? Like when people have these complicated battle plans, like nobody makes it past the third step and it just falls apart, right? So keep it simple. Uh, communication is absolutely key. You know, think about is there not, not did I say it, but is there any way they could misinterpret it? <laughs> you know, I need to be even more clear. And then one of the really, really big things that, that it's made me think a lot about is this idea of commander's intent. And when the, when the people underneath the commander understand the goal, the ultimate goal, they can change and pivot and do the things on the ground in the moment that are required, not just to follow orders, but to actually achieve the goal. And there are a number of stories in this uh, of, of people who got a command, you know, attack to the Northeast, but they realized, oh, that is not actually what they want me to do. They don't understand where I am right now. I need to attack to the Northwest. And they 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 disobeyed orders, but at in a way that actually accomplished the goal. And I think that that is a huge piece of the benefit of having a really clear, really good company culture is that everybody understands, quote unquote, commander's intent, and people can make decisions in the moment on the ground with what they're doing that will accomplish the real goal versus whatever, maybe this particular rule just doesn't apply right now. And the better thing to do is something else, et cetera. Right. Right. And that's so critical. Do you want a bunch of box checkers on your team that are seemingly checking all of the right boxes and then getting you to the complete wrong outcome or do you want <clears throat> people that are getting to the mission at hand, the outcome aligned with those values and are empowered to do it. 
And it's an understanding by leadership that, hey, there's going to be slight nuances and differences. And listen, I realize there's a high level of need in many industries for a consistent process and going through. And that is, I don't want to undervalue. That's critical. That being said, what are the guardrails that we could put up with the process so people can still interpret and say, this is the outcome we need to get to. Here's the roadblocks that we're facing, or here's the misinterpretation. And I love that to get to the commander's intent of what it is. It allows people to be empowered. Now, how do people feel, John, when they've been trusted to say, that's your target that you need to get to? I trust Go you. Do it. Yeah. I trust you to get there and let me know what I need to do as your leader to block and tackle those roadblocks that might be up ahead on the road if that's the path that you're taking. Maybe I might be a little further ahead of you and I might be able to remove some of those roadblocks for you or have your back if you hit them and you need a line of support. Uh, that that is so huge and so critical. Well, and that you know that's the other thing that was really clear in this book is a commander needs to give his subordinates the ability to do their job, you know, and not micromanage. And same, same thing in a lot of the stories that I've heard from my dad about great leadership is that the whole thing of, you know, you were given these people for a reason, let them do their job. Don't try and do it yourself or make them do it your way empower them to go do it the best way they can and get out, you know, tell them here's the goal and get out of their way and help them. Yeah, I I agree with that. It's so funny. I was joking just the other day with our chief of staff at 34 Strong. Um, She runs so much of the operation has become just hugely integral part of our culture and being the thermostat for our team. So a thermometer just takes the read of what's there, tells you the temperature. She can take the read and then figure out, okay, Here's where we want the temperature to be Yeah, yeah. leading to this. Have Darren and Brandon, my business partner, have they become the open doors that are now allowing too much heat into the room or are they, <laughs> what's going on? And the powerful part that I've kind of been walking down the line on, particularly through as we've had to adapt and work through COVID going from March, where we were highly unsure of what the business environment was going to look like to now being busier than we've ever been and having business grow in a time where it has been incredibly challenging for, for so many. I, I mean, yeah. very fortunate and, you know, thankful to God for that. That being yeah. said, that, that March place and kind of going through that, what I'm getting at is right now, what's fascinating is I look at our team and I realize one of the biggest things that I've given to my team over the course of the past year, two years personally, has been getting the heck out of their way. Yeah. Yes. Allowing them to do it. And I get people asking me, and it's so easy for when you're when you're listening and you're the owner of your company, not only are you leading it, but you're in a chair where you're 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 an owner, right? So I know so I know you're speaking to some, some of the entrepreneurs out there. It's so easy. Somebody asks us a question about something that's coming up. And well, I, I should know. I'm gonna give the answer. I had people email me, they call me about things, and my first response is like, you know what? I have no idea, and I'm not gonna even pretend to answer that or attempt to answer that to look smart. I know who on my team handles that and I'm going to make sure they're responding because I will tell you something that I will screw up and then I'll get in trouble for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) With my team. And I don't need, I don't need to do anything to cause them to distrust just because I had the idea and I thought this was the right move in the moment. 
sometimes those are the pieces that we have to let go of. So to grow as a leader, to grow as a leader is to remember this, John. What got us here won't get us there. So it's actually a function of what are we willing to let go of that got us to this level that can allow us to be in a state of growth. And that is so uncomforting for so many. We can sometimes do more of what we've already done. Well, if you've been an incredible individual contributor, which is, this is the course of how a lot of people move through the ranks to become managers and leaders. They've been incredible individual contributors. Then they move into now, now great. You've been, you know, really doing great as an individual salesperson. Now we're going to make you the director of the sales department. Well, that's not necessarily in alignment because just because they were good individually at selling doesn't mean that managing people is this same skill set. So we have to think about those those ripples as to how it goes through. And if you're going to be successful in that director of sales role, what do you need to let go of doing to get into that place? What do you need to let go of doing or being to, to make that jump and go through that metamorphosis? Well, you know, it's definitely something that comes up on my podcast on a somewhat regular basis. And it's that idea that people do really well at something and then they get put in charge of the group of people that does that something. Those are two totally different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And for their whole life, they've been getting better and better and better at the thing they do and probably even getting trained and you know, practicing it and, you know, being mentored in it and all that kind of stuff. But then what would ever make someone think that they should be able to just manage people without any of that training? You know, that's, and I think that's where people kind of go wrong. They feel like they should be able to do that. Like, and yet they went to get the PhD they have or, or whatever, or the master's degree, they went to school and studied really hard, you know? So I think that getting the training and getting the mentorship and the learning around leadership is also really, really important. If that is now the thing that, that someone's doing, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong with saying, Hey, I'd like some training in this. I'd like some coaching in this. I'd like to take this on in the same way that I took on my, my other skill set. So, you know, you know, there was uh, some research that came out on that very point. 82% of the time, this was from Gallup again, 82% of the time, John, that people are promoted into managerial roles, okay, to where they yep. an individual contributors. 82% of the time, they're promoted based on their technical experience and tenure. That system is broken, and that's why over 50% of the working population just in the United States is disengaged, and it's much yep. higher on a global level. We don't need to geek out on numbers. It's actually much higher when we account for that globally. That number yeah. actually falls well above 70%. And why is that? Because of that fact that you just talked about. So if you're listening to this and saying, well, what can I do? Let's start. If you have the power to change the system, that system is broken. <laughs> to yeah. John's point, that, that's what I'm saying. That system is no. broken. Ask people, if you've got a great individual contributor, and you're thinking of promoting him into manager or promoting her into manager because they've been so incredible in their role. 
Have the conversation with them first. Ask them, do you want to manage people? What do you yeah. think about managing people? What do you think you'll be good at? Or if they're saying, you know, I'm not interested in managing people, is there a growth path for them in the company to continue to ride that escalator upwards where they can continue to contribute individually and continue to grow on salary contributions of what they're doing? Because you might be able to, you might just be at the tip of their potential and they might be able to do a lot for the organization from an individual role, but not be in a role where they're managing people. That's yeah. okay. If we can change the glasses on that, yeah. as opposed to putting these ceilings on, well, this is what you do and yeah. people in these boxes as an individual contributor, take the box off and ask, what do those tracks look like? Organizations yeah. who are doing that are opening up all kinds of doors in how they're framing it and just showing yeah. there's a growth track in either one of those. They are having much, much higher levels of employee engagement because yeah. people realize they don't have to go through the traditional, oh, fake it till I make it. And there's right. elements of that that go through, but we can't deal with that when we're talking about employee engagement, John, and talking about when people are engaged, that's the difference between your company being profitable, not profitable, productive versus non-productive, getting sued. <laughs> These are right. things. People yeah. are so disengaged yeah. and so ticked off and checked out. That's exactly what they're doing. Having safety incidents. I mean, we can keep going. But yeah, we can reduce that. Well, you know, I work with a lot of companies where technical degrees of one sort or another are highly valued. And I see, I have seen a number of times, I'm thinking of one, of course, I'm not going to mention who or where, but one in particular, but I've seen this over and over where there's somebody who doesn't have the technical degree, but has just light is light years ahead of anyone around them in terms of how they are with people and their leadership skills and, and motivating teams and, you know, keeping things on track and their entrepreneurial angle on things. And they probably won't get promoted because they don't have a technical degree. And the person who does get promoted has much lower levels of emotional intelligence and EQ and such. And, you know, that is, I think, a really big problem, not, not just for the person who's being passed over. It's kind of a bummer for them, but boy, it's a real issue for the organization. Yeah. Be, you know, cause that's a massive fork in the road. And I, you know, think that that, you know, when organizations do that and lose the expertise of the person who's good at leadership and the person who, you know, isn't such a good leader, was a great individual contributor, has that degree, let's say, and now is all of a sudden checked out because they're frustrated because they can't, they're not really good at what they're doing. And, you know, it's just such a problem. Yeah. Or they go back to the place of where they do what they know, John. So instead of actually yep. leading people, then they're trying to get involved in the work. Right, micromanaging. Yeah. Micromanaging or saying, hey, you know what, John, don't worry about that. I'll take that. And then yeah. I'm not spending time developing you. There's no longevity plan uh, yeah. for, for going through. There's limits that are placed on ourselves when we operate in that vein of thinking. And what's fascinating is there's organizations that have realized that and they've said, well, this person doesn't have the technical background. They're really good at managing the people. And they've created partnerships like that. 
that there's different ways that we can look at this. It's a trap to fall into that we have to have all of these boxes checked per se uh, when we could actually look at it through a different lens. And how do I know this? I will. I will share this Karen, with you. How do you know that? How do I know this? So <laughs> I will share this with you. I've worked many, many times with clients. There's a simple question that, that we'll ask. And we do, we do a program called the Best Manager Academy with some of our with some of our clients, and then we do what's called the Strong Leader Institute. So this was with a team of senior leaders in a very very technical organization. And I asked the I asked the simple question: Describe your best leader that you've ever had. And anybody that's listening, I encourage you to do this. This is straight out of our playbook from our Strong Leader Institute. Describe the best leader you had, and really go deep as to why they were the best leader that you had. Right. So we've gone around and we've done this and people go through and they answer this. And John, I've watched this time and time again in technical jobs and non-technical. You know what nobody ever says? They were the best technically at this role, but they treated right. everybody like crap. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, None of, and they, and the, uh, the, the powerful part is when people have the aha moment, when they realize, wow, my best leader actually usually wasn't the most technically comp competent and that leader might have owned that might have owned the fact that they didn't have that level and they had the team that really had that level and they were able to empower that so the team felt even more engaged in that yeah. process and they were able to get a lot more done able to stay aligned and that that person invested in them this is not me saying this john this is me being a fly on the wall watch this for thousands of people yeah ask that question when they think of their, their their best. The other question that we ask is, I want you to describe your worst leader. What are the qualities yeah. that they had? And then they start going, and that's where there's a disconnect. I want yeah. to be very clear. I'm not undermining, I don't think you are either, the importance of having technical knowledge. It's critical. Not at all. Yeah, it's, it's very, critical. very important. And in certain roles, you are going to have to have that certain level of technical knowledge to be able to go through. That being said, is it required that there's certain boxes that are checked or are there ways that we could look at that and remove some of those limits because people can receive that training and that development through different areas. Jim Quick mm -hmm. in his book, Limitless, came out earlier this year, phenomenal book. He made a quote that is so profound and it's so powerful. If you fight for your limits, John, you get to keep them. You can have and that yeah. for us as individuals, and that's for us as organizations. If we're going to fight and say, but this, but this person doesn't have that, but they're actually really an incredible manager and that would be, but we're going to put up all the butts and the hurdles as opposed to saying, what's the ways that we can create some of that stability and moving forward, then we get to keep that limit. And that's, and that's a choice that we get to make. Either way, you got to decide which one intentionally takes you towards the culture that you want or which one creates intentionally the culture that you don't want based on some of those areas. Yeah. Well, and I, and again, you know, looping us back around to kind of where we started, I love the idea of intentionality and I think it's a really, really good thing to remember you are, you, you have a culture. There's not an option of, do I have a culture or not? You do have a culture. Have you created it intentionally? And is it forwarding the action or is it actually 
one of those things that sort of treated over time and built up and we do it this way because we've always done it this way and it actually doesn't work, you know? And that intentionality and the willingness to, to look at it and sit down with it. And, you know, the other thing that I think I hear in the background of just about everything that you're saying, maybe everything, is having had a lot of these conversations just for this podcast at this point, it does seem to me like one of the core strengths of great leaders is that they love people. They, they just love people and they're willing to support people and care about them and make it about other people versus themselves, the leader. And, you know, that, that kind of leadership, I think not only works better, but gosh, it's way more fulfilling. Yeah. And I want to build on that because when we hear they love people, it doesn't mean that they're people pleasers. It means that they're, no. for, for me, what I, what I hear from that, John, and I, I, the, the, the ad that I would have to that, because I think that's a hugely important point. They're mm. willing to love people in all of love's ups, downs, yes. highs, and lows. There's a willing, yeah. and you might be a leader that's really good at executing it, getting things done. And you realize that you're doing that in service to other people. It's, yeah. it's that particular lens. And when we really love somebody, like I love my team at 34 Strong. When we love yeah. people, we're willing to do what? Have the hard conversations with them. Because I love you, I'm not going to tolerate it. It's like both of us have kids. Our yeah. kids are constantly going to push the boundaries on where the line yeah. is. Yeah. Because I love you, I'm going to show you that's where the line is. Not yeah. for me, but if you behave like that out in the real world, that's not going to get you very far. Yeah. And if, and yep. if I give into that, that's not going to get you very far. So when we actually, when we're willing to love people, we're willing to hold them accountable. We're willing Absolutely. to them. We're willing to take the time to invest in them. And these are areas, even if you find yourself more in a technical capacity where you feel more technologically strong, but you're leading people. How does the work that you're doing through people lead to bigger innovations on the technological side? Mm. Sometimes if we're a doer, we're, we're accustomed to, again, growing through the lens of, I'm, I'm a doer. I've gotten a lot of things done. Guess what? When you've moved into a leadership role, you're getting people done. And those are the people. Yeah. And I don't mean, and you're never done with people, okay? Yeah. I mean, you're doing the work on the people to grow the seeds into what the organization can be, will be. If you're the yeah. one as a leader that's stuck being the doer, what does this look like as your company grows and scales? What does it look yeah. like? It's not sustainable. You can't afford not to invest in your people. There's that great final, final statement I'll make on that. There's that great conversation between the CFO and the CEO and this and, and the CFO says, gosh, it's so expensive. We can't, we can't afford to invest in our people and, and, and then the CEO says something along the lines of like, well, if you think it's expensive to invest in our people, imagine not investing in them. Yeah, yeah, that's the real, yeah. That's the real exactly. question. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a, the real cost is not investing, right? That's it. Because, because training your employees, developing your employees, that's an investment. It's not a cost. Not training them. That's a cost. That's yeah, a cost. That's, yeah, that's very good. That, that either leads you upward, again, intention and design, 
or on a downward path that feels like you're spiraling out of control. It's a choice. Yeah. It, it, everything's a choice, right? Well, so so who's one of your favorite best leaders, and what do you? What's the story you would tell about them? So, gosh, there's so many incredible leaders that are out there. Um, I'm going to go to high school, and I'm going to take us, John, on this conversation yeah. where most of us don't go. I'm not going to give a brand name that everybody's known. I'm going to yeah. take you back to my high school track coach who passed away. Uh, and he, he passed away a few years ago, young, unexpectedly. Oh, I'm sorry. But he was absolutely incredible. So I went to uh, I went to St. Mary's College High School out in Berkeley, uh, California. And my high school track coach, his name was Francis Mason. And the track for him, John, he would work us to the ground. And at yeah. times, when I was in high school, I didn't think he loved people. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought he loved just kicking our butt to the point of where you were at your breaking point. And I realized it was because he loved us deeply that he was willing to do that. And the lessons he was providing for us on the track were always for life. And in those moments, when as soon as the workouts were done, the races were done, and the intensity cooled, he turned it off on a dime. And the story that I want to share with you that I think really drives this point home, I'll never forget this day because it still gives me lessons to this day. And I was maybe 15 or 16 at the time. We were on the track one day and we're running around the oval. It's in early spring and then the rain starts to fall. So the rain starts to fall and it's coming down and everybody's still kind of working out and it's starting to drizzle and it gets a little bit harder Baseball players come off the field. We see the jumpers and throwers coming off the field. The sprinters are out there and we're out there. I'm a distance, I was a distance runner. And what we were doing on that workout that day was long and grueling. It was four quarter mile, four sets of four quarter miles. So 16 Oof. total. And each set of four, you you would have you'd run one lap and you'd actually run at a slower speed and you'd have a certain amount of break. And then in the next set, you'd have less break. And by the final set, you'd have basically 15, 20 seconds in between, and you're leaving everything on the line. We knew we were in for a very difficult workout, and then the rain complicated things. The sprinters then walked off the track because the rain had picked up so much, and there was six of us remaining and distance runners. And Francis was out there, and he is barking at us and telling us, you guys are doing this workout. And what I watched happen over the course of that workout, we, we and we were only in the first set when the rain really started. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's coming up so hard off the track, John, I could barely see 10, 10 yards in front of me. Mm. Some, of the other sprinters, some of the other distance runners come off the track and they are like, I'm done. Cussed him out. Said, blank you, Francis. I'm getting off the track. This is absolutely absurd. I somehow stayed on the track my training partner at the time, he stayed on the track, and one of our other coaches stayed on the track running with us. And I said, uh-huh. if Coach Keebler is going to stay on the track, and Coach Fran is willing to stay here and bust our butt. I do not like this at all right now. This is absolute misery, but I'll fight through it just because I'm not going to quit if they're not going to quit. I'm going to do it for yeah. them. So we go through the workout, we get through it, and we survive it, and we get to the locker room, and many of those those students that had walked off the track and cussed him out. What I remember was they knew, they're like, oh gosh, I got to go talk to coach after this. They go into the coach's office and then they came out and they went in, 
puckered faces, pissed, and they looked like they just wanted a piece of him. And they all came out with smiles on their face and laughing. He knew exactly what he was doing to us. He was pushing us right up to the point of breaking. And he knew it was going to snap a few of us. The lesson that that provided was that we could push past our discomforts, our challenges, and we can still get back up even when we break. And we can try and we can fail. And then we can get up and we can try and fail again. But make sure that you keep trying. Never, never yeah. give up in that space and never, ne- never let it go. And as a leader, we can provide that safety net so others can do that. That was just one, John, of many pivotal moments in my life with Francis and his work on the track and the man that I've become today are still deeply rooted in who he was. And also there was him and and our head track coach, Jay Lawson, who I'm still in contact with, who does an amazing job with uh, at St. Mary's out there. They both had a huge part, but Francis was my main coach as a distance runner. Absolutely incredible um, human being. And, uh, and pushing us past and pushing us through points that we didn't think our own limits got to let go of those limits. Yeah, that's fabulous. Well, and you know, I, I, it ties back into that whole concept of love. I, when I'm doing my trainings, I tell people I'm the drill instructor for your greatness, you know, and if a drill instructor steps over something and lets you get away with something, that might seem nice in the moment, but when you're out in the battle and you don't know how to do that right, it's going to get you killed, you know? So that that whole thing of coming from really loving people enough to do all the fun stuff and support them and everything, but also have those hard conversations and see the greatness in them, even if they're not reaching it right now, and just keep calling that forth, you yeah. know? I think there there's a misunderstanding that great leaders are always charismatic and everybody thinks they're awesome and they're such great wow. this and that, you know, and I think that's a real misunderstanding. I think that actually it's, it, you know, there are some successful charismatic leaders, but there are a whole bunch of successful leaders that are not so charismatic, but they just really, care about people. They're willing to have the hard conversations. They push people to be better and better. And, and, uh, and it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the most eloquent speaker on the stage ever, you know, um, yeah. it, what really matters is, is how well you take care of your people and if you can bring out the best in them. Right. Yeah. And consistently take care of your people and consistently challenge them to be their greatness. If you think of your best coaches and your best leaders that we've all ever worked for, there were times that we didn't love them at all. We were really ticked off at them. I can think back to that moment when I was on the track. I did not love Francis at all. I was kind of <laughs> yeah. myself. And yet that that has always been a place in me as an anchor point in my life that I can go yeah. back and remember how challenging that was just one of several workouts like that, but just yeah. to my core when I was like, I can't keep going on this and yet somehow found the ability to keep going. And I can remember that physically. So when I'm in situations where it's like, okay, I'm not getting my butt kicked right now. I can work through this. That's just a yeah. anchor point to have. So you're absolutely right. Taking care of people and loving them and having the courage to love them. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. Well, look, I think that's a 
a fabulous place to wrap it up. And I know that you've, you've got to run and I appreciate you being so generous with your time, Darren. And is there, is there anything else that you, that's like that you've maybe thought of or that you want to say, or just to kind of send everybody out with a thought? Is there anything there for you like that? Yeah, I, I will say this right now, as we are working through what 2020 has been and yeah. we are trying to evolve, evolve into what the new world will look like. Let's make sure that we don't forget that one of our greatest collaborators over time for tapping into our own levels of excellence that, that have led to human innovation has been spending time in nature. Go outside, yeah. look up, take a look around, ask what I'm missing. If you're feeling overwhelmed, get yourself back to a place where you're just whelmed by just going outside, paying attention, or just looking out your window and give yourself permission to take those pauses. We need more good leaders. We need more strong leaders. And sometimes it's not about doing more. It's about slowing down to speed up so that you can be a better leader. Step outside, get, get take a look around the world, no matter where you are, even if you're in a big city, notice something, ask what I'm missing. Because the only way that we can really show up strong is by being present, going outside, taking a look around, uh, looking looking at what's what's there to offer conditions that level of presence. We, you know, Darren, I think we should take another couple of minutes and dig into that because that is what you've been thinking about so much recently. And you've got the show uh, that we mentioned at the beginning. And do you want to what do you want to give us a few little nuggets about collaborating with nature? Like, is there maybe a story that you want to tell us about your experience or one of these people that you've interviewed or, you know, I don't, I don't want to have you give the whole Ted talk, but you know, yeah. there might, or maybe one of the ones that didn't make it into the Ted talk or. Yeah. Um, I want to, I, I will share uh, the, 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 the story of uh, five-time Grammy award-winning bassist, Victor Wooten. He's the bass player for Bela Fleck and the Fleck tones. He's an iconic mm. bass player. Um, has been a hero of mine since I was 15 and yeah. first heard his music. And um, and over the past year and a half, we've actually become incredibly good friends. I've co-facilitated events with him. We even recently did a song together for my podcast, right. Nature Advantage. Right on. Really That's cool. So he's on the Nature Advantage. What was fascinating when I vividly remember this, John, looking at him musically and looking at so many other musicians. When I was a young musician coming up, I know we've shared that in the past yeah. as well in our history. It's easy to fall into this space of, I just have to practice more. I just have to work harder at the instrument. And that yeah. approach applied through life. We were talking about checking boxes. So I was mm. practice more, do more, go through all these things. And then I started learning about Victor and his his simplest one of, one of the questions that one of the one of the elements that has led for him to his iconic success as a bass player, you know what it is? Animal tracking. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> what does that have to do with music? And it has everything to do with music for him. I'm yeah. not share all the details of that, but bottom line is his time. He found that he enjoyed animal tracking. And when you're out looking at animals, you put popsicle sticks in the ground to see their uh -huh. tracks. Uh -huh. See the tracks and what, what happened. He saw it as musical notes. There was, yeah, yeah. there was a rhythm. There was a beat, which you can hear when we walk. There's rhythm that's there. Music is yeah. part when we're walking, right, when we're going through. And that's what he saw. But he was asking, what's the story that's there? 
So it's not the notes that Victor plays, it's how he plays them. And he's so aware of the stories that, that he's telling through the instrument and how he connects with people. And it's because of his presence that he's taken in the moment of getting on his hands and knees, staring at a set of tracks that is conditioned what? Presence. So when he's on stage and he's playing and whatever's happening is around him, he's always in the moment. And that has yeah. been such a critical part of his rise to being the outstanding musician that he is and just human being. So the question that comes out of this, and this is a download, this is one of question, one of um, several questions that, that I've, I've been able to co collaborate with and grab from some of the folks that I've interviewed. It's on the website, natureadvantageshow.com. His simple question, John, is what am I missing? That was, I shared mm. earlier. And he asks himself that question regularly. And it came from going around, walking around the forest, looking at leaves, looking at, looking out, just looking out his window. And, you know, before yeah. COVID, he was traveling a lot and he goes, look, even if I'm not out in nature, I can ask that question. And in yeah. so doing, it forces you to just say, I'm going to look a little deeper at that. I'm going to think a little deeper. And what do we do? We activate those portions of our mind that might just be on autopilot, just in the snorkel zone where we actually, yeah. if we dive, there's a lot more there that's very relevant and providing the creativity innovation and solutions that we need for the moment that are right there at our beck and call. That's what it's about. That's a really, that's a great question. What am I missing? Just once in a while, right? Like not like anything's wrong even, just what am I missing? Oh, look, that little leaf is bent in a way that it wouldn't be unless something had stepped on it. Something had stepped on it. So it right? allows you to tap into the creative process. And we know that some of the most innovative minds of human history have done what? Have been really intentional about spending time in nature. In nature. Why yeah. evolved because of studying birds. Mike, yep. Mike Galowitz, your first guest on here. A lot of people yep. don't know this. His interview is fascinating. It's coming out uh, in the future here. Yep. Um, it's His books are all rooted in biomimicry in some way, shape, or form. And yeah. he talks about that deeply in the book. So we go to places with him Everybody talks to him about business. And I'm like, well, why? Where did all these stories come from? And what was it? So we get into the nature advantage that he's created that have been yeah. the seeds in the birthplace of many of his stories that he's talked about in, yeah. uh, in his book. So, Well, you know, I, I mean, if you think about, I, I mean, my overlay on everything is typically our evolutionary biology, right? And how did we evolve? Like we were collaborating with nature the whole time. I mean, and we still technically are, but we've gotten way away from being in those natural settings. And, you know, one of the things I think about all the time, Darren, is that, you know, the difference between Euclidean geometries and fractal geometry and the difference between looking at a city where it's all right angles and ellipses and circles and ovals, and then looking at a forest or, you know, foothills where it's all this beautiful, chaotic pattern. And I, I just think that can't help but impact our brain, right? If all we're perceiving all the time is this Euclidean square angled geometry mm -hmm. and we don't get enough of that chaotic 
trees and leaves and forests and you know i just think that's got to have some sort of a physical impact on the layout of our brains oh yeah there's 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 been studies that have even tied to have been tied to that there's even physicians that are starting to prescribe time in nature that's taking place in in uh in europe there's forest bathing yeah forest (laughs) bathing. well there's there's a doctor that's in um in uh Gosh, what's what's her name? Uh, Fazani or Razani? She gave an incredible TED TEDx talk in Nashville, but she uh, literally she's created a center at the Oakland Children's Hospital where uh, kids that are in inner cities are going through. They're they're looking at depression or ADD or all these different things. Like, let's uh, give medicine. She's actually organized uh, and set up with the local Parks and Rec time outside to get him to the parks to go run in the field. So what I'm saying is we're prescribing this to fix ailments. It's yeah. already starting to take place. My yeah. piece is what happens when we prescribe it as a way to the pathway of excellence, of growth. Yeah. There's a gentleman named Shane Metcalf, company called 15.5. They do a lot in the space of employee engagement. He's their chief culture officer. I've known him since the company was founded. And uh, he's very intentional about taking their team out of nature for retreats and actually doing things. And they built their company culture around that. So it's it's showing up in organizations because of everything you just said, spending that time sparks that creativity, innovation. And there's a lot of studies that are actually showing that, uh, how that alignment takes place. And we just have to look to history. It's all there. Well, so if you are, if this conversation has engaged you and you're listening right now, one of the things you could intentionally build into your company culture is time in nature. And, uh, and, you know, Darren's got some, I'm sure some really good ideas and good insights on his upcoming podcast that will help you do that. So Mike, Mike Kalowitz has some really cool ideas that he shares in that download about how he's actually folded it in to his company culture. So yeah, yeah. people can actually, go uh, five tips to better collaborate with nature. And it ranges from for you individually to having meetings, how you're actually having meetings, different elements, just some creative ideas. You find what works for you. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, Darren, thanks again for joining me. It's been really a blast. It's nice to just, you know, get a chance to sit down and have a conversation like this with you. I mean, we've, we've uh, done that over coffee, but it was a long time ago. That's so. right, John. I know. And and uh, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, always a pleasure to get to spend time with you. Awesome. Good. Well, and uh, and we will we'll have those links in the show notes. And uh, Darren's easy to find if you want to follow him, catch up with him. And thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I hope this has been valuable to you. And I will look forward to hearing you next time. Thank you for joining the Speak Like a Leader podcast. Go be awesome.